This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Suicide is now the second leading cause of death among people between the ages of 10 to 34. And the rates of suicide, along with the rates at which people say they have suicidal thoughts, have been increasing in recent decades. That increase has come at the same time as social media use has flourished. And so some people have guessed that there might be a connection. But until just recently, the sort of longitudinal research that could help us better understand this potential connection hasn't been possible because social media is still relatively new. But a new study, the longest research effort to date, has offered some insights. And let's start with the bad news. In the study, girls who used social media a lot when they were about 13 years old and then continued to increase their social media use as they got older were at a much higher clinical risk for suicide as young adults. But it wasn't just social media use that correlated to increased suicidal thoughts among girls. It was television and video games, too. And perhaps just as interesting as the effect these habits had on girls is the effect that wasn't seen among boys. There were some interesting patterns in the data where boys are concerned, but nothing quite so stark as what the researchers saw among the girls. So what should we make of this study? What should parents and teachers be looking out for? The study's co-author, Sarah Coyne, is an associate professor of human development at Brigham Young University, and she's also the mother of five children, including a young teen girl. So she's got a pretty vested interest in how parents should use these results to inform their parenting. Sarah Coyne, welcome to Undisciplined. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Sarah, a lot of us tend to get caught up in what a study seems to suggest about this or that. And and when we come upon a solid longitudinal finding, it's really easy to go, ah, okay, so now we've got the really good information. But, But these are all just snapshots. And you've been studying the intersection between media use and human behavior for more than a decade. You've looked at video games and depiction of violence and, and superheroes and princesses. And what's, what's the thing that you keep on seeing? What keeps jumping out at you again and again? That's such a good question because you're right. You shouldn't take just a single study without looking at the greater context. What I've come to believe after all my research is that Media does have an effect on us. I think it would be a naive to suggest it has no effect at all. But the effect varies greatly from individual to individual, depending on context and content and a host of other individual characteristics. So your latest study, this longitudinal look at how media impacts mental health, started way back in 2009. I I assume that means it was in development around 2007, around 2008. You were right at the start of your academic career at that time. I'm thinking this was very ambitious. It's a a larger team. And I just got on the job at Brigham Young University. And I thought that what they were doing was pretty neat. And so at wave three, I said, hey, you're doing a study about families and teenagers. You really should include some media items. And you know, this new fangled social media theme seems to be a hit. We should include some questions on that. So they let me in their study, and then I became kind of a major player as things went on. What was it about this new fangled social media thing that was so attractive to you? 
you know, I didn't start by looking at mental health. That wasn't my interest when I got started. I'm just more broadly interested in how media impacts individuals and families, family connections. You know, some of my earlier research was like, you know, if you're using social media with parents, how does that impact the parent-child relationship? And so those were some of our earlier questions, just more broad connections. Were you a heavy user of social media? Did you see, I mean, your kids were really young at the time, so I can, I can assume that they weren't using social media. Was it something that you were into or just something you were curious about? Yeah, I think I think I had like a Facebook account that I used occasionally. It was really my students. Hey, we want to do research on this. And so you do a literature search. And there were just, you know, a couple of studies on social media at that time. But I could tell it was going to be something big. And so I'm, I'm, really, gl- I'm really glad that we were able to add those few items in. And then we just measured the same thing year after year for over a decade. When you're the professor who studies social media, does that make you the cool professor, like everybody <laughs> wants to, like all the undergrads want to hang with you or, or actually does that make you the killjoy? Like, oh man, you're, you're studying this thing that we like to do and you're bringing reason and order to something that shouldn't be explained. Yeah. I wish I was the cool professor. <laughs> Grad students right now, <laughs> I'd probably say I'm more killjoy. <laughs> so you, you came in to this research effort in wave three, there's been 11 total waves. Is that correct? Yeah, and it's kind of a fun story. So we were done at wave 10, mm-hmm. um, which was, I think, maybe four or five years ago. But we noticed this general trend. You kind of talked about this increase in suicide. And we had a, a pretty public suicide on our campus here. And so a few of us got together and said, what, what can we do as faculty? You know, what's, what's our contribution here? And we had this wealth of data on these, you know, across an entire adolescence. And we thought, let's go back one more time and add in some suicide risk questions to find out if we can answer some kind of longitudinal questions about suicide risk. Oh, so this is interesting. So the suicide questions weren't in the earlier waves. They were in this this extra 11th wave? Yep, just in the 11th wave. Okay, so let's put a pin in that for a minute because I wanted to ask you, you know, as, as you're seeing these waves of data come on, you know, usually early in these efforts, it can be kind of hard to distinguish between signal and noise. But, but I'm wondering at what point you and your fellow researchers kind of said, oh, my gosh, this is something interesting right here. And if it wasn't the, the suicidal ideation thing, I'm wondering what that might have been. You know, we've looked at this a number of different ways. And we've looked at the, the link between social media use and depression and anxiety and not finding much there over time, which kind of went against some things. But then when we looked at the suicide risk, like I was surprised that we had this really interesting trajectory of these young girls that really came out when we looked at the data that way. So, so that, that kind of woke me up a little bit. And the big finding here is that some girls with certain media habits are more likely to be at a higher clinical risk of suicide. But there are some caveats to this. At least for now, we're talking about a pretty specific pattern. Can you talk about that pattern? Yeah, sure. Uh, for social media use, it was if they were started out at two to three hours a day at age 13, and then that use increased over time until the age, you know, early of emerging adulthood, so in their early 20s. So this this is a girl who's using social media at really high levels at a pretty early age, and then who increases that time. So that that's a pretty small percentage of our sample. 
most kids fell into kind of a, you know, low moderate increase, which was not predictive of suicide risk over time at all. But if they did have this pattern, two Mm -hmm. to three hours a day early in their adolescence, 13, and then increasing, I mean, like, gosh, increasing after two or three hours a day, that's a lot of social media use as they're arriving in their young adult years. These are people who are really quite fixated on what's going on in social media. Exactly. Yeah. So not uncommon to, you know, five, six, seven hours on social media, your phones at that age, which again is, is really high level and extreme. Is there a way to quantify how high level and extreme that is? Because I've got a 13 year old and thankfully, honestly, at this point, she has no interest in social media. So like the idea of her spending two to three hours a day on TikTok or Snapchat or Twitter or whatever just seems foreign to me. But I've got an N of one here to work with. So, I mean, how 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 common is that? You know, I don't think that at age 13, kids are developmentally ready for everything that social media can throw at them. You know, social media can be a real powerful tool to connect and can be protective for suicide risk if you're using it in the right way. But there's a lot, right? (laughs) There's a lot that goes on there. Whether you're talking about cyberbullying or fear of missing out or social comparisons or, gosh, I'm not in that picture. Now I feel all left out. And how do I deal with those emotions? And that's a lot for anyone, you know, even adults to deal with. And so at age 12, 13, they're just not developmentally at the stage where they've got all the coping tools they need to handle some of those really hard things about social media. This is on social media, this this correlative pattern. But It's also, you found an association with girls who spend a lot of time at that age playing video games and girls who spend a lot of time at that age watching television shows. How much different was the social media as a factor as as opposed to these other forms of media? It's an interesting question and a surprising one. You know, and, and maybe what you just have is this small segment of young girls who have very, very high media use in general. We're sharing at very high levels of social media. Uh, We're displacing face-to-face interactions by watching a lot of TV. And with a few exceptions, most of the most significant effects you saw for suicide risk over time were among the girls and young women. What what is happening out there, or, or maybe what's not happening when it comes to the boys? Why why aren't we seeing this among the boys? where we're seeing it so starkly among among the girls. Yeah. You know, I have a teenage daughter myself and I was a teenage girl obviously before social media hit, but why are girls struggling so much with this? It's a great question. And I think it's because girls feel relational distress kind of a different level than boys do. They really internalize it and experience it kind of differently than boys do. And and like I said, if you're a 13-year-old girl and you're jumping on social media for three, four hours a day, it's pretty easy to feel rejected or not good enough or not pretty enough or not popular enough or whatever. And if if I experience that and really internalize it, you know, that might be why we're seeing these findings for girls and not for boys. I mean, gosh, I'm I'm a middle-aged man, and when I'm on social media, I don't feel good enough or pretty enough or anything <laughs> enough. So, 
Just ignore the inner voice, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I do gather that none of this means that if if I had a son and he was 13 and he was on social media for two or three hours a day, that that wouldn't be cause for concern, right? Like, like it might not be correlated to an increased suicide risk, but this is this is probably not the healthiest behaviors for young teenagers, girls, or boys. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So I have an older son who's 16 and I mean, we just let him on Twitter, I think last year. Uh, so I, I, just because we didn't, the finding wasn't there in this particular study of 500 adolescents doesn't mean it's like, great, let your son do whatever media they want for as long as they want, you know, because there's a history of other research that shows that certain types of media are harmful to boys as well. Yeah, in this study, this particular pattern was found just for girls. And there was one pretty significant effect among boys, and I'm, I'm probably oversimplifying this, but correct me if, if I've got this wrong. When you combine a lot of video game playing with being bullied, there's a correlated increased risk of suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Is that right? Yeah. So at that final wave, we used these passive sensing apps to capture exactly what they were doing on their phones. So we had a really uh, valid method of figuring out what they were actually doing. And for boys, if they're playing a lot of video games and report being victimized or cyberbullied, those boys had the highest suicide risk. And again, that wasn't long-term. It was just in early adulthood, but very interesting finding. I wanted to ask you about these passive sensing apps because I, I, I got to gather that like, if you're a young teenager or a young adult, you probably not really wanting to some researcher from Brigham Young University to be watching what you're looking at on your on your phone and on your computer. How did you convince people to put these things on? Well, I think people are so used to it at this stage. You know, anyone who has an iPhone, you know, Apple's already doing that for you. And so we just use like screen time, which is on almost every iPhone to pull that data off. So and then for Android phones, we worked with a company to develop an app. And surprisingly, we had, you know, very little argument. People were like, sure, yeah, you know, oh totally my gosh. very used to it. I know. Yeah, it, it feels horrifying, but I, that's <laughs> where we're at. And these are, I mean, like, to, to just to make sure that, like, we put this into complete context, these are people who have been enrolled in this study for a long time, right? So they were 10 years old on average. Yeah. So when they were 10 years old, their parents were like, yeah, sure. Look at my kid. And then, and now they're in their early twenties and yeah, they're still. On average. I know. I mean, yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> they're like heroes, right? Like this is a really, I mean, cause what, like they're, I don't know what they're getting out of it, but they, you know, like they're helping a lot of people understand some pretty important questions. That's, that must feel pretty good to know that you have that sort of support from your study participants. Yeah, absolute hero, especially to stick with the study for that long a period of time. But yeah, it, without them, we couldn't answer these big questions. So very, very grateful. One of the big, you know, conundrums is in longitudinal research is when to cut things off. You said, you know, you weren't planning a 11th wave, but you went back to the well are, are you done done now? Or is there a possibility that there'll be a 12th wave and a 13th wave? Oh, gosh, you know, you never say never. Yeah, we thought we were done. You know, 10 years is a long time to do a longitudinal study. And I started a new one. So I actually said, you know, 
I studied adolescence my whole career. I have to start earlier if I want to find the true impact of media. So I started a new longitudinal study with kids before they were even born. So that's called Project Media. We're on wave four of that. The kids are now three and a half. So I'm hoping to follow them throughout, you know, adolescence. So that'll be a kind of a 20 year study, um, which sounds a little exhausting. But I mean, I just love to watch how kids develop over time. That's how we answer big questions. When you are watching data over time, and I mean, and there's like different data collection techniques and different levels of, you know, scientific blindness involved. But I, I got to figure that like you start to feel a little invested in these individuals. Yeah, you really do. I just had a really sad email this week uh, from one of the parents of one of our kids in our longitudinal study who had drowned that last summer. So was obviously unable to participate and it just broke my heart. I, I cried over this, this little girl who had, you know, we'd been in their family homes multiple times. We'd interview their parents. And so there is a sense of connection there between researcher and participant. You mentioned earlier that there are conditions in which social media can be potentially protective against mental health challenges. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? There's a fascinating line of research on the distinction between active and passive social media use. So passive social media use is, is how most people use it, right? You just scroll on your phone for hours <laughs> and you don't really do much. And that tends to be related to increased depressive symptoms. But if you use your phone in active ways, if you're posting yourself, if you're commenting positive things, if you're liking other people's posts, it's actually related to a decrease in depressive symptoms. So I've, I've always strongly believed it's not just about time. It, it's more of the context in which you use it. One of the things that I inferred from this study, and, and one of the things I think we often miss when we're focused on correlations and significant, is that in a lot of ways, the kids in the study showed they were pretty resilient. I mean, a lot of the things we worry about as parents aren't overwhelmingly and universally and objectively harmful to our kids. A little social media, a little bit of video games, a limited TV diet, it it might be all right. It, it might, as you say, even be protective. Yeah, it's, it's that state, you know, that, that saying moderation in all things is really true here as well. You know, these kids are growing up in, in a digital environment and it, it would be, I think, silly to like say, let's ban these things. You know, you can't have a cell phone until you're out of the house and no social media until you're older because like, that's their world. And it's our job as parents to try to teach them how to thrive in that environment. And like I said, there's all sorts of, of healthy uses of social media that just people aren't really aware of at this stage. Do you think that when these social media natives come of age, when they start having kids, when they start having kids that are about the age where you know kids start to engage in social media, that they'll be better at it because as you said, like, like this is the first generation. They didn't really have any guides and, and moreover parents didn't have any experience for guiding them, but, but the next generation will to, to some extent. Right. 
Yeah, I think they'll be much better than us. Um, I think about like how my parents tried to manage video game use when I was a child. And they didn't grow up with video games, so they had no clue what they were doing. And I feel like my generation is much better at that. And then, but now we're all like, oh, shoot, we didn't have social media growing up, growing up. What are we doing? And so it's going to be the same. Like, they'll probably still have social media, but there will be something else that <laughs> this next generation of parents will have to grapple with in terms of technology. Because that's the exciting thing about being a media scholar. It's always changing. You began this study, if I'm doing the math right, uh, you started it not too long after your first son was born. You're... He was five years old. Okay. Yeah. So your your oldest kids were still pretty young then. You've been conducting and participating in this as your family has grown. And, and not just in this longitudinal study, but in research on media violence and video gaming and sex in the media and body images in the media. And I suppose it's probably not possible that the things you study don't impact the way you parent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a case in point, my 10-year-old son, you know, hey, mom, I want a cell phone such and such kid in my class has a cell phone. I said, you, you got the wrong mom to have a cell phone here, son. <laughs> um, it absolutely has changed the way that I parent. I think in some ways it's made me more open and less scared to certain things. And that at other times, the things that I, I research so deeply are a little more scary. So something like a video game addiction or a social media addiction, you know, that impairs your capacity to function because I research that kind of thing, I'm really on the lookout for those symptoms in my kids. And that can be kind of scary. Has there ever been a time when you've come upon a finding, either something that you've discovered in your own research or something that you've read in the literature from other people? And has there ever been like a really like hard and fast sort of like, oh, oh, crud, we're doing it wrong? <laughs> Yeah. So you mentioned my princess research. There's, there's a fun story behind that. So when my daughter was three years old, she was really into Disney princesses, you know, loved to dress up, had all the dolls and all that. And I went to a gender development conference and the speaker just written a book on princesses and said, you know, all of, all of women's problems stem back to our fixation on Disney princesses. And I was like, oh my gosh, I study this. What's wrong with me? And, but then she said, you know, we actually have very little research on this topic. And, and I thought, ah, I study media and child development. I'll do that study. And so then over the next couple of years, I was able to do a study on the effects of Disney princess culture to find out it's not as bad as we think. And you, you like, I mean, you like princesses. You're, I saw somewhere your email was actually Sarah <laughs> princess or princess Sarah. Yeah. Before I turned 30, 30, I changed it. I changed it when I turned 30. My name actually, Sarah means princess in Hebrew. So there's a, there's a deep connection there. <laughs> Well, you've had, you you gave a talk at BYU a few years ago about how you can incorporate the good aspects of princessdom into your lives in, in healthy ways if, if you're a young woman. Well, I guess if you're a young man, too. Yeah, absolutely. I think princesses can speak to potential, to what we can become in a worldly sense or in a spiritual sense. And that runs deep. And when we get caught up on the appearance and beauty and, you know, glitter and glamour, that kind of thing, that, that's where we're on the wrong page. But yeah, for me, princesses can inspire potential when, when thought about in the right way. So I was pretty terrified when 
you know, of princesses. Like, I, I feel like I was, like, right on top of this. Like, I was like, ah, my kid, my daughter's born, and I'm like, she is not going to watch the princess movies. Right. We are not, like, I dressed her in skull and crossbones. We nicknamed her Spike. I mean, we, like, we did everything. And you know what? She really likes the princess movies. She's 13. I know. Still, like, you can't keep them away from it. They love it, don't they? <laughs> it's okay. It's going to be all right. <laughs> and I, I guess that sort of gets to the heart of, of the way that human behavioral research is best applied, right? It's good to nudge us, to inform us, maybe give us a little direction as to what the right direction might be, but but probably not in most cases to tell us like, do do this, don't do this, always do this, never do that, go this way, don't go that way. Life is far more nuanced than that, right? And yeah, academic research can give us some good guidelines and some ideas, you know, so, so for example, if I'm thinking about how can I lower suicide risk in my kid, that's, that's something really big and scary. You know, one small thing you can do, you know, according to our research is to not let your kid use social media for two to three hours a day when they're 13 years old. That's something that's relatively easy. And again, probably has a small impact. There's a lot of things that impact suicide risk, but you know, that's the power of research. Again, kind of nudge, nudge us in different ways. I like your phrase there. That's Sarah Coyne. She's the lead author of a recent report in the Journal of Youth and Adolescence on the longest study to date on the effects of social media on teens. Sarah Coyne, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot, and I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.